everyone's got some advantages, whether that's like what you're exposed to at home or what your natural interests are. So I was exposed to some business at home, as we've said, sort of like working at my dad's surgery and growing up with a sort of like self-employed sort of ethos in the family. And the other one is I've been interested in tech since like a really early age. Are you searching for your ideal career, fed up of your daily grind, or simply want to hear some inspiring stories? Then you've come to the right place, because it's time to do a job you love. It's time to get work savvy. Welcome to episode nine of the Get Work Savvy podcast, the show that gives you tips, tricks and advice on how you can find a way to get paid for your passion. If you find yourself wondering how you can escape your dull or uninspiring day job, or if you're just starting to think about what career path to choose, then you, my friend, are in the right place. I hope that you're well, and I'm so glad that you join me for another episode. For those of you who are new, hi, my name's Liam. I created this podcast because it took me over 10 years to find a job that I can truly say I love. If you want to find out more about my motivations as to why I started this project, then why not listen back to the short introduction episode of this podcast? Like me, you might also be here if you're just looking to get some motivation from the stories that we share, or if you're simply interested in what others consider their dream jobs to be. If you have listened before, then you know we focus on a different professional each week from a wide range of different industries. We bring you their story, and we pass on the lessons they've learned over their career. As well as being motivated, because that is important, it's equally important to understand that you need to start to take action in order to find your job satisfaction. So... (laughs) Be sure to listen to the end of each show where we'll summarise the key points that will help you in your pursuit to get paid for your passion. If you find this show interesting and you know somebody who'd benefit from it, then please share it in any way that you can. Now, for those of you who tuned in to find out who's won that launch competition, then first of all, thank you so much if you have entered. The draw for the 50 and the £25 vouchers will be revealed at the end of this episode. Speaking of which, this week we speak to Dr. James. It might surprise you that James actually found his career while studying to become a doctor and it isn't following the traditional route that you might automatically assume. Now don't worry, I'll let James tell his own story because he's going to do it much more justice than I ever could. But what I would like to speak to you about beforehand is just how you can stumble on or create your own ideal job at any time. What I've learned from James and all the guests so far is that when you find what it is that you're passionate about, you get this feeling inside that you just need to make it happen. The other thing to note is that no one's going to do it for you. As much as I love the film Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, unfortunately there's no such thing as a golden ticket. It's up to you to take your chance. You need to work hard and just like Charlie, you need to hold on to your idea with all your might. Quite often I've heard of famous entrepreneurs about how they were going through really tough times and they thought about giving it all up just for that perceived lucky moment to happen and their career to launch afterwards. So if you are trying to pursue your ideal career... Don't give up because you never know, it could be just around the corner. Right, before I start going off onto too many other tangents, let's hear about what James's motivations are and what career he decided to choose. So hi to James and welcome to the Get Work Savvy podcast. Thanks for having me. I should say Dr. James, though, shouldn't I? <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but it is important to point out that you have uh, got that doctorate, so congratulations on that, first of all. Thanks so much. Could you just explain what it is that you do? 
Yeah, sure. So I, the founder and CEO of a company called SignUp. SignUp is an intelligent online learning platform that my co-founder and I developed whilst we were studying at medical school. Essentially, we were looking for a more effective and engaging and more personalized way for us to study because obviously medicine, as with a lot of other courses, you've got a lot to learn in a relatively short period of time. And you need to learn it in such a way that you're building on your knowledge each year and that you can actually take it into a potential emergency situation with you. So sometimes just staring at a textbook and hoping that you'll absorb that information doesn't quite cut it. I've always been quite techy, so is my co-founder. So one couple of months over summer, we just decided to build an app that basically let us write questions for each other to try and challenge each other's knowledge, send them over social media to ourselves and our colleagues. And then that became a bit of a game, a bit of a challenge. We ended up crowdsourcing a bunch of tests to help people prepare for their exam. Then over the course of three years, we just built on that. So it became its own website. We partnered with a major publisher in the medical space to sort of offer some of their content in a mobile format. We did a small crowdfunding raise, started to make bits of money from it. And all the time we're being super users of the product because we're literally using it, relying on it to get through our exams. And then by the time we graduated, we had a decision to make and it seemed like the business was looking promising enough and we were having a good enough time doing it that we sort of decided to go into it full time so that's what we've been doing for the last 10 months fantastic it sounds like in a really exciting journey that you've been on you studied at uni for your doctorate what kind of role were you actually aiming for before you decided to branch off and start this business i'd have been a qualified doctor so i'd have gone to the nhs i worked in hospital as a, as a junior doctor for a couple of years then i would have leaned towards being a gp probably in my case so my dad's a gp and my mum's a practice manager at the surgery so i'd always grown up sort of in and around that environment initially just doing bits of reception and sort of filing, eventually seeing patients, doing blood pressures, sort of things that a healthcare assistant would do. And that's the thing that made me want to do medicine in the first place. So from an early age, did you want to do that? Like when you're at school, obviously you had your, your parents in that kind of role. Was that like an aspiration of yours? Yeah, that, and I was the almost stereotypical Asian kid whose dad's a doctor and wanted to do medicine. Then unfortunately, fortunately, depending on how you see it, in the couple of months that I actually had to pick my A-levels, decided to rebel, decided I wanted to be a journalist instead. So instead of science and biology and useful stuff, I did philosophy. Did that, then in a roundabout way, sort of got into medicine, and then got sidetracked by sort of tech because the app store was first released. You mentioned briefly that you and your your co-founder, what's your co-founder's name, by the way? Uh, Omer Biani. Okay, brilliant. So you both kind of were working on this game just to get you through the study and find a different way of learning. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk perhaps a bit more in depth for anyone listening who's stumbling on the idea of the crowdfunding and how you launched that particular product itself to then actually realize that, wow, this has got some traction here and we're getting some good results and perhaps it's worthwhile making this our full-time jobs? Yeah, sure. So I guess this was over a sort of two-year period, essentially, from just initially making something over the period of a couple of weeks, finally getting it out on the app store, begging your friends to review it and share it on social media and things like that. And at the time, it was sort of a fun project for us. If there was any particular motivation, it was, you know, maybe this would look good on a medical education focused CV at some point down the line. And that's all we expected of it. Over time, we started to get more and more users. So it sort of grew from us and our friends using it to other people in the uni using it. This was one or two years after the App Store had really become a thing with third party apps. So there weren't all that many apps out on the App Store compared to now. And there was quite a bit more demand for them. So I remember getting on a plane once and we travelled about six hours from just from a family holiday and we got back. 
and my inbox was jammed because we'd had about 15,000 downloads whilst I was in the air, wow. which was insane because I mean, what we'd done was we were initially charging about two pound a download for it. And it was getting essentially sort of beer money worth of stuff in per week. Um, we made it free and it just got picked up by a couple of the app review websites as what was a previously quite popular, well-reviewed app that had now gone free. And that set off a bit of a chain reaction that got people to download it. We were totally unprepared for it. Like we weren't tracking things in the right way. The app was still really buggy. Um, we didn't have like a good onboarding experience or the, frankly, the server capacity to really keep it going at that level. So in some ways, it was like a little bit of a, if not wasted, slightly not brilliantly realized opportunity. But what it did do for us was show us that, that there's something in this. There's something really validating about 15,000 people downloading the not incredibly professionally made app that you made. And it taught us that there was probably something in the idea and the sort of method that we were using, which we knew because we liked it. We knew we wanted to use it. But obviously other people that you don't even know doing that is next level validation. Yeah, it's having that social proof of actually there's something to this. And like you say, when you made it free, you probably just thought, ah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, it wasn't generating enough money to be particularly like important to us that was making money. So we just decided we'd rather have sort of more people using it or at the very least, like see how that goes for a bit. This became like a substantial like part-time job. So we're going to, to uni sort of during the day and in the second half of the medical degree, you're more or less sort of like working on the wards full-time. Um, then evening we're answering like support requests and we're releasing new versions of the app and it's, it's getting better and better. We crowdfunded because the costs were starting to, to mount up and we thought that with, with some capital, we could bring some people on who could help to manage the day-to-day to it whilst we were still at uni because we really wanted to finish the degree but wanted to in an ideal world, sort of get through that first before we even thought about going on it full time. So we raised on Crowdcube, we raised about 200,000 from about 100 different investors. Really good experience. I'd, I'd recommend checking Crowdcube out to people. It's probably a lot more work than people think. I think people sort of think that crowdfunding's just an easier way to get money, and it can be. There's a lot of systems that are less well vetted than Crowdcube, but on the good ones where you're asking people to put in money for equity, you want to see your financial projections and your business plan. You need a good video. You're probably going to need to do some face-to-face meetings with people because they want to, you know, see who you are sort of in the flesh. So it was a full four-month process all in. You've said that obviously you were exchanging some equity for the actual investment itself. Mm-hmm. I've heard of some crowdsourcing where basically you give people pledges. So yeah. if you give me that kind of money, I'll give you a t-shirt or you get the content or, or whatever it happens to be. But that's a different model. I wasn't even aware that there was crowdsourcing, again, naively on my part, but I wasn't aware that that was actually a model and uh, and that was a possible route for people. It's interesting to you say that. So I, I guess because I've done it now, it's very popular in the UK. Like the US, it's only just been sort of made legal there to essentially solicit for investment. But yeah, the ones you're thinking of will be things like uh, Kickstarter and Indiegogo. Um, so I'm not especially at knocking those methods. They're very good if you've got a consumer-focused, productized company or an art project like an album or a show that you're wanting to put on and stuff like that. And you're essentially, you're not giving away equity. As you said, you're either giving away pre-orders or some sort of perk or um, like stash to people. And people will give you 10 to 100 quid, maybe. They sort of buy into what you're doing. On the crowdfunding sort of equity platforms, you've got like Cedars, Crowdcube and Syndicate Room. People tend to invest a lot more money. So the average investment on Crowdcube will be about £1,500. Some invest substantially more. So someone put about 25000 in just off seeing our pitch video. 
Wow. Yeah, I know. Some people are requesting the business plan. We're doing face-to-face meetings. This guy just saw the video and put in for it. But yeah, they want voting rights and they want contracts with you when they're investors in your company. Some of them have been quite hands-on advising us because they're former teachers or people who've been involved in education, angel investors, essentially. Brilliant. That has opened my eyes to a different world. I've heard a lot of the Kickstarters and, and seen some of those videos where like they're trying to release a movie and, and you get free tickets. Yeah. And then the more you pledge, the, the more you get. With that particular one, was it literally just they could offer you a certain amount of money and then you'd accept? Or was it like the other Kickstarter model that you have to get to a certain target? Yeah, you've got to get to a certain target because... Obviously, that's the amount that you've said you need in order to present your business run properly. So yeah, you can do that, but then you can fund more. In our case, we ended up having to arrange a lot of the investment offline, like people go through the platform. But the majority of what came through were from contacts of us or contacts of contacts of ours, rather than coming in raw through the Crowdcube platform itself. I think that people perhaps look at those kind of crowdsourcing websites and think, oh, that's just easy money, you know, and you've got to be lucky to for it to really get off the ground but there's obviously a certain level of work and especially with that model where you have to have like a business plan in case somebody asks for it or you have to have all kind of the proof yeah it's a different process because you're you're not dealing with like someone who specializes it you're not dealing with like a vc who's going to go through every aspect of the business model with you i read a book once years ago and it was before sort of crowdfunding was really a thing but it was really interesting it's called the wisdom of crowds and it's this guy basically observing this phenomenon where he goes to like a summer fair or something like that and there's a competition that's guess how many sweets in the jar or guess the weight of the cow whatever it is someone figured out that 99.9 whatever percent of the time if you look at the people who've guessed before you and you take the average of their guesses it's going to be incredibly accurate so there's something about like people's random guesses that together create something that's often more accurate than the experts similar thing will be who wants to be a millionaire and asking the audience versus phoning a friend so i think there's something similar in crowdfunding which is you're going to get a hundred or maybe a thousand people looking at your plan some of those guys are going to be accountants some of them are going to be i don't know doctors some of them are going to be lawyers some of them are going to have never done this before. Some of them are going to have done it a lot. Some of them are going to run their own business in a totally different industry. And they're all going to look through certain bits of your documents with a particular interest and largely ignore the others. So no one's getting like a, or very few people are getting like a whole end-to-end view like a traditional investor would. But they are each sort of focusing on their thing and then they discuss that with other people. So you're, you're getting it looked at probably to the same extent. That's a brilliant way of explaining that. I think that that makes absolute sense if you were to gauge everybody's real guess and then make an average of that that offers a more detailed answer yeah it sort of gets gets you to the same point or something like that yeah no great stuff thank you for that insight that's a a brilliant way of thinking about that particular model obviously you reached the target and you made a success of that so congratulations to you and your business partner on that one from there you've got your crowdsourcing and i guess you're almost pinching yourself to think that this is actually happening what happens then Do you hire other people to work with you? Run us through what went on the next phase of that journey. Yeah, we we brought some people on to sort of do various things for us over the next two years whilst we're still in medicine. We started to spend more on, we've always done the development ourselves because we're quite close to that, but uh, paying either designers or um, people to come in and do specific bits on it that we thought could be improved, essentially at the marketing of it mostly. So that got us to a point where we could start, we had something that we could actually start selling to people because it had enough quality. And a big turning point for us was, I guess about a year after that, I started to get a license to distribute content from Oxford University Press. So they have very popular series of content with medics that are geared towards their end of year exams or their board exams after they graduate. And it's all largely paper-based. So we, we take that and, and put it on mobile and got to the point where we had about one in four UK medical students using it. 
around the time that we graduated, which is really cool. Awesome. Just shows the the quality, like you say, that you've been able to build in there and, and especially having a partner like that, it gives it that reliability. There are things I think that you only notice if you're properly using your product. Things that are not necessarily glaring bugs, but if you're using it for hours a day, like actually for its intended purpose, we just managed to really fine tune everything to what a medic would want. The challenge has been since then, applying it into environments that we're less familiar with. So we do stuff, for example, in like financial services and transport and areas like that now. So it's been really interesting, but it's been a real challenge as well, sort of thinking outside of ourselves a bit and sort of developing new user profiles. Wow. Yeah. And has that been largely successful branching out into those different markets? I think we're still on that process, but but yeah, sure. So I think for a while, medical students whilst they've been a big part of our audience, they're a minority overall. They're probably the biggest minority that we've got. But yeah, we've had pilots uh, using it, accountants sort of preparing for their exams, taxi drivers doing it for like area knowledge, martial arts instructor. So it's, it's just quite interesting browsing our database because you, you stumble across all sorts of things that you didn't know about. Yeah. Brilliant. How did that work out with Oxford? Did they approach you or did you have to bid for that particular project? We bumped into one of their BD guys on Twitter, actually. So it was... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know it, it was really serendipitous the way it worked because that could have quite easily not happened. And I think before then, we had some sort of idea in our head that we'd want to professionalise it at some point and get some peer-reviewed content in there from a publisher. But... If it hadn't have been so sort of like right place, right time, we probably wouldn't have looked to do that until a couple of years later when we graduated. Yes, so they came across the product. We were speaking on Twitter. Then we went down for a meeting and turned the whole thing around in about three months. Wow. Looking back, that's actually like really lucky. (laughs) People often say that though. They often say, you know, I was right place, right time, luck. But I do believe that quite often things happen for a reason. And Yeah, you know what? I've started to come to that belief, actually. So the weirdest one I've heard was Evernote. Apparently they were like a day or two away from going bankrupt back in the day. And he he just happened to be speaking to like a long-term user, told them about the problems. And this guy was some sort of rich Swedish investor or something who fronted them their next investment round to stop them from so that is an awesome story i've not heard that one wow that's uh another stars aligning kind of moment you mentioned twitter and how you just bumped into or you just started a conversation with the contacts that managed to get you into that publishing house were you actively engaging with your audience i guess on twitter and and other mediums yeah sort of so we've got the sign up twitter and then obviously we've all got our personal twitter so on sign up we'd have been doing sort of like light touch social media stuff so queuing up some interesting articles a couple of day uh, tweeting every so often about some of the quizzes that we've got on the platform or some of the features and then just sort of figuring out the communities that are on twitter around like medical education or education in general things like that i don't think we're doing too much of it but they probably found us through a, a relevant tweet or something along those lines and that's just inspiration i hope for anyone listening that you know you could be doing something that is totally unexpected but because you enjoy it and actually it gets that proof that it could lead you anywhere so thank you very much for sharing that with us and hopefully some people can take that away and kind of give them that confidence to keep going and you never know where it's going to take you yeah in regards to why you do it then so you branched off and was it a difficult decision to to step away from what you'd actually trained and qualified to do was you a bit torn about that after all your years of training no actually um various reasons so as i said to you before i've always been interested in tech 
And looking back, I've always been interested in, in sort of like business as well. So I said that yeah, I wanted to do medicine because my mum and dad work at the same small medical practice. Being a GP is interesting because you're, you're not employed by the NHS. You are self-employed and running a business, technically speaking, and in the way that the, your job operates day to day. So I assumed that I wanted to do medicine and I enjoy a lot about this very specific like clinical thing. So I enjoy seeing patients. I enjoy the sort of like part art, part science, problem solving nature of it i enjoy the social side but i also enjoyed working with dads more on the business side of it so looking at how you could like improve a process or innovate within something being part of a small team is something i've always enjoyed compared to being like a small part of a, a really large machine which is like obviously what the nhs is and then going through i'd from sixth form onwards i'd always found like little side projects whether that was like doing bits of web development or sort of like graphic design for people and earning a couple of quid or later on in medicine sort of with with, with sign up and with another app that i was involved with as well so i think over the five years i had enough exposure to both to sort of make a really informed decision about it and the thing that i was getting up in the morning for the thing that i was sort of really excited about the thing that i didn't know where it could take me in a couple of years. The thing that I got to work on with my best friends and stuff was, was always the business. Um, so it was, whether or not it was easy, it was, it was a simple decision. Like I knew which was the decision that would be right for me. And I knew that even if I do this and the business fails, and for whatever reason, I can't go back to medicine. In reality, I probably could. I could still live with that. Whereas if I had a successful career in medicine, but I never sort of pushed to see how far we could take sign up, then that would sort of hang over me for a while. That's a big draw for some people. Well, for a lot of people that I've talked to, one in particular being James, the pilot on another episode that we've recorded, he went into another career and he always had the thought about being a pilot, but it's just that thought of, I can't get it out of my head. Yeah. And that's the thing that I, if I've, if I go for it and fail, so be it, but at least I can say I've done it. So yeah, yeah it's following your heart and what drives you and the passion and, and thinking about if I don't do this, is that going to be eating away at me? Yeah, and you can see people doing that when they get particularly passionate about something. They take risks that, on average or on balance, are probably not all that rational, like at the time. So whether that's you going after like a, a, a woman who you think might be like the one, or if it is a one in a million sort of chance to start a business, or um, people doing all sorts of things like that. But I think when you get bitten by that, you've really just got to follow it through or you end up sort of, well, it would have eaten me up, so... Mm. you'd have had regrets yes exactly thank you for sharing that james looking back over your journey and it's been a fantastic journey what could you point to about being perhaps your proudest moment or the most surprising moment if there's too many to pick from cool i'll do a humble brag and tell you one recently <laughs> okay i turned 27 i was gonna say 26 no i turned 27 uh, a couple of weeks ago and on the day that I turned 27, an exhibit about sort of us and, and SINAP opened at Leeds City Museum. So they took a bunch of like our old awards and my stethoscope, copies of my medical books and like all of the little notes that we've been doodling in lectures, sort of planning out SINAP. But they're, they're on display in a museum now. Wow. So that's really cool. That's like a nice little thing. And I, well, I, wasn't, I obviously wasn't expecting that. Yeah, was was that a bit surreal being asked to do that and going and actually seeing it? I've not gone yet. I had a meeting that evening, so oh no way! I sent my girlfriend and my sister, but no, I've not seen it yet. Yeah, you got to get down there. <laughs> I don't think I've I've spoken to anyone yet who's had any exhibits or <laughs> any um, museum shows about themselves yet. So definitely um, one to be proud of. Good. That's that's amazing. That's brilliant. On the flip side to that, then, so that is obviously something that definitely worthy being proud of. What has been your biggest challenge through the process so far? Hmm. 
probably obviously it's less than an issue now but motivating myself to get through the course when about two years away from the end I'd mentally like made that decision that I wasn't going to do it so there was definitely something driving me to finish the course a combination of wanting to get the degree and have that sort of validation behind us something to do with like the fact we'd already I'd already invested like four years of my life and however many thousand pounds in tuition fees to it and then just wanting to have something at the very least like to fall back on but then on the other hand, like I could see that we weren't able to sort of drive the, the sales side of the business forward as much as we'd have liked to during that time. And then at some point, it just seemed like killing ourselves with work when we could quite easily put the degree on hold or just drop out. And so after three years, you can trade it in for a BSc if you want, and then sort of like really focus on the business. So I had a couple of like crises of faith, like definitely towards like the end of the course where it's like, I don't need to be doing this. I could work roughly like nine to five on the business do a bit extra, then spend time with like my girlfriend and my friends and on hobbies and not have two things that are going to eat into as much time as I can possibly throw at them. Yeah, I imagine that was really difficult, especially if you've you've already, like you say, made that mental decision of I'm going to follow this through and I can only imagine the amount of work you got to put in for your doctorate, having only done a, an undergrad degree. So hats off to you. What influenced your decision to keep going then? Was it the investment that you'd already made or, or did somebody kind of say into you and pushing you on to, to actually achieve it? Or was it all internal, just, just self-motivation? I kept just reminding myself of the value of doing them sort of together. So there's a definite value for us sort of having spent three years being super users of sign up itself to get through our exams and even in hindsight now I, I really think that's true like it let us do things very quickly and very cheaply uh, and build like a really high quality product we were really well supported by the university going through as well particularly like the business school they gave us like office space and, and grants and then on the flip side as well we found other ways to sort of like make it work so I where I could I would do my like essays and projects and stuff around sort of like tech in medical education or on like user experience and clinical information and stuff like that so yeah just finding ways to make it work and then not thinking about it too much and getting your head down essentially <laughs> just doing the hard work well congratulations for getting through that because i'm not sure that i'd been able to manage both at the same time so uh so yeah no, i absolutely applaud you on that one sir for anyone who's perhaps thinking about either going through some crowdsourcing or, or starting an app what kind of skills and equipment do you suggest to people who are thinking about starting? Like, where did you start? Anything that, that you could kind of point people in the direction of if they're interested in it? Yeah, sure. So I had two advantages. Everyone's got some advantages, whether that's like what you're exposed to at home or what your natural interests are. So I was exposed to some business at home, as we've said, sort of like working at my dad's surgery and growing up with a sort of like self-employed sort of ethos in the family. And the other one is I've been interested in tech since like a really early age. So I started doing bits of programming when I was about 14 with a thing called Lego Mindstorms, which was great programmable Lego with motors and stuff like that. Cool. But my co-founder didn't have any coding experience and he's now our CTO and he's, he's far better than me. Uh, two girls that we've employed about eight months ago, no coding experience. One's an economist, one's a teacher by background and they picked stuff up very quickly too. My advice would be if you're doing something sort of tech or app based, do teach yourself to code for a couple of weeks at least, whether it's like a website doing some HTML, CSS, or just setting up like a WordPress blog. It may or may not be for you, but at the very least, you're going to see how a computer thinks and you're going to get some sort of indication for what's possible, what's not, how long things should take, uh, what can go wrong, how expensive things should be, how to articulate your thoughts in terms of what you want the computer to do and how to communicate with a developer. So I think that's well worth doing. And there's things like Code Academy. There's various sort of courses running Leeds and I imagine in other cities as well that are really good for that. Second is plenty of really, really good resources online about business model for startups. So 
things like the Lean Startup or a slightly less well-known book called Platform Scale will give you a really good grounding in like the business concepts you need for startups. And what you'll realize is you can get very far without sort of MBA level stuff or having to do like advanced forecasts and stuff like that. In fact, most people in startups don't don't have that level of knowledge. I certainly don't have that level of knowledge. It's a very cool field because you need to know a lot of different things, but you don't need degree level knowledge on all of them. It's all stuff that you can find out and that you will push yourself to if you've got an idea that you're really interested in. Next thing I just say is in most situations, find yourself a co-founder. At the very least, it's going to be someone who can go through the trials and tribulations with you. Even if they think similarly and have similar interests to you, it's someone to bounce ideas off of. And then over time, you're probably going to want to start like differentiating. So my co-founder and myself are very similar people, both not bad at the business side and both quite good at the, the technical side when we started. So we sort of roughly split everything 50-50 and just sort of bounce thoughts off each other. Over time, we've, we've got more of our own interests, so I generally don't code now. Omer does, he does pretty much everything. And I do the biz dev, networking, sales, the easy stuff, as he calls it. The fun stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds great. And and like you say, especially if you have somebody to work with in that regard, not only do they keep you accountable, so you can check in with each other, see how things are going, be that helping hand if if it's necessary, but you're always going to have certain strengths. And I think that's that's where some people, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've not started a business, so I can't, I can't possibly comment that accurately. But from talking to people who have, playing to your strengths and doing what you're good at, like you say, you can do it certainly, but if, if it's not your strength and, and you've got other strengths, then why not focus on those? So yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic insight. Yes, no, I think what you said about being accountable is, is, is a key thing as well. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I thought about this with the podcast a little while ago and it wasn't until I actually told a couple of people about it and one person in particular that I have regular calls with. He doesn't necessarily get involved too much with the, the ins and outs, but it's just nice to be able to yeah, it is. run through my thoughts and have somebody just check in and say, so how's it going? And Yeah, because you've created an expectation with someone and it, it's something to hold yourself to. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely wise. Yeah, definitely worth doing. And if you can get a co-founder, then absolutely brilliant. Thank you for sharing those tips, James. Now, this is a question that I ask, but don't really ever know if I'm going to get like a, a different answer to. But let's see what you think to this one, James. So if you could go back and do anything differently, is there anything that you would change? Ah, uh, okay. People ask me this and I, I'm probably not going to give you a straight answer. Um... <laughs> no one has, to be honest. Okay, so I think about this a lot, right? So I was at uni for about eight years, essentially because of a sort of stupid teenage decision I made to do philosophy and pick those subjects. Uh, And then I went to a different university for a year, eventually dropped out, worked at my dad's practice for a year, then really wanted to do medicine, didn't have the A-levels for it. So went to do a foundation course in clinical science for a year, and then went over to Leeds. So that was like an extra like two and a half years or so of my life. So I could have been graduated quite a bit earlier. Mm. A lot of people will probably expect me to say that, kind of just gone straight for it. But, and you probably know what I'm going to say, all of that led me to where I am now, in a personal sense, in terms of like the journey. But then also, I literally met my co-founder and my long-term girlfriend at the Foundation for Medicine course. So if I'd have picked medicine straight off, or if I'd have picked business straight off, I, I wouldn't have done that. And depending on how you look at this metaphysically or whatever, Maybe I'd have found the same people and come up with an equivalent idea somewhere else. But I don't think so. I think, I think I've got a uniquely amazing co-founder and a uniquely amazing girlfriend that I really wouldn't sort of roll the dice again, even if it meant making some objectively better decisions early on. 
Yeah, and that's why I, I kind of waffled my question, I suppose, because <laughs> when I've asked the first few people, I realised that like most people are, are super happy with where they've got to, and myself included. I had a bit of a windy path to get into my ideal job, and sure. although it was winding, although like you say, you might have got there a bit quicker, mm-hmm. would the same opportunities have arisen? Yeah, and would you know like deep down that it was right for you unless you've gone down a couple of dead ends and, and stuff like that? absolutely absolutely spot on i totally agree with that so yeah thank you for just confirming my theory on that one (laughs) (laughs) so thinking about your role at the moment then what is your average work week you said that there's a bit of social engagements that you have could you just give people a general overview of of what your working week looks like yeah sure we've got a small team now so it's myself my technical co-founder and two people we employed recently Manisha's a former teacher who helps us engage with schools uh, as well as customers and sort of focus on the education side of things and Charlotte's a recent economics grad who's helping on business development but having said that, it's a startup. So, you know, obviously everyone, there's a lot of overlap between the things that people do. So everyone's involved in, if not actually developing, then at least testing and improving the product. Everyone's doing bits of marketing and writing blog posts. Um, everyone's doing bits of networking when we've got an event. By and large, I help set the product strategy like at a high level. So the way SignUp works now is we've got the B2C platform. So we get quite a lot of students using it every day to prepare for various exams but where most of our money comes from and what a lot of our improvements want at the moment is um, we work with schools and businesses as well to create custom learning environments that are powered by sign up for them okay so like a white listing yeah yeah white labeling um sort of thing that basically came up when some of our most active users were asking for more sort of custom features than we could provide on the main platform so in terms of the product right now, it's making sort of continuous improvements and then also speaking to the clients that we've got and the clients that we'd like to have and sort of building a product roadmap of where we want everything to be in you know, a month and a year's time. I sometimes roll my sleeves up and help to code. Um, so in particular, like I, I do the iOS app once in a while. But most of my time is on sort of traveling, meeting clients, speaking at events, pitching, essentially, pitching either to investors or to potential clients or um, sort of press and things like that. So I spend a lot of time pitching and sort of thinking about the process of that, like how do we articulate what the product is, what I want it to be, what the benefits are to people, and increasingly managing the team, either training the girls that we've got in various areas that, you know, I'm not the best guy in the world at but I'm, I'm reasonably handy at bits of development and design and social media marketing so I'm sort of like training them up to a point where they can pick it up and run with it and, and get better than me which they are doing quickly and I travel a lot at the moment like probably in London once or twice a week from Leeds where we're based and then up and down we're a small company competing with some much larger and more established companies that's an advantage and a and disadvantage to clients at least in their perception but I think one of the advantages should be that if you're interested and you want to sort of see sign up, then the founder will get down and show you it personally when you want. That definitely is an advantage. In my perspective, you get more of a personalized service and you can actually talk about the finite details rather than having to go through several people. Yeah, and they've got more to prove. So we've done a lot of the tech and design ourselves. When we have hired people, the best results have come from, okay, the best and the worst results have come from freelancers. But when you get the right one, the one who is only a freelancer because they've just started and in a couple of years time, they're going to be, doing some amazing stuff but right now they're going to work for relatively cheap and have you as part of their portfolio and sort of like really go all out on it fantastic so if anyone was thinking about starting a business could you give them any pointers what did you do first did you register with hmrc or did you buy a website domain what was your first steps into that world 
Yeah, good question. I guess it depends on what business you're doing. If you want to start a liposuction business, then definitely register it and everything uh, before that test marketing. If we're talking about, you know, a sort of tech company in a not especially regulated field, there's probably a very good period where you can build something, get people using it, not especially taking money in, where you're not really a business. And I'd say take advantage of that because obviously once you register, then suddenly you've got quite an administrative overhead. It's not, it's not huge, but if you're trying to do it alongside another job or something like that. I'd say the first thing would be you can get pretty far testing out your idea with just the people around you. More than likely, the idea that you've got is based on some sort of personal or professional experience that you have. So your colleagues or your family or your friends are probably going to be good people to speak to about whether this has got legs. You can do an awful amount of research without ever having to leave your desk. Like you can do competitor marketing. You can see how people are pricing their products. You, you can find out all sorts of stuff and build like an initial website and get people to sign up for your beta and maybe invest some money before you, definitely before you start to go through all of the registration and employing people and all of that kind of stuff. Great stuff. Thank you very much for that. Looking back over your journey and perhaps even on a daily basis, would you say that you've got any wise words or quotes that kind of you think of to get you through perhaps when you were thinking about getting through those final years of your, your qualification that you could, um, could leave for the listeners to, to ponder? Ah, one that comes to mind now is obviously not my quote. I think it's fairly famous from some sort of book, but it's an entrepreneur, someone who will work 80 hours a week to avoid working 40 hours a week for someone else. And that's totally true. There's just something about the mindset. So I think some people, not most even, but some people do assume that running businesses is going to be easier in most ways to whatever it is they're doing currently. It's not, it's a lot harder. You'll end up working almost certainly under minimum wage for a considerable amount of time unless you happen to be one of the however many, one in a hundred or whatever that sort of really, really make it, you're not necessarily going to be earning more than you would in a current job. But if you do it right, and if you've got an idea that works, and if you find the right people, you will enjoy it more, and you will get, I strongly believe, like more fulfillment out of it, because it's, to me at least, and to people that are that way inclined, there's nothing more rewarding than seeing something that you built grow, and even when you're getting money in from it, you know, the money goes straight back into the business. It's not like it's going into my pocket. But what I like about getting the money in from it is that I've been coding since I was about 14 on and off, just doing stupid stuff. And my, my parents totally supported me whatever I wanted to do, but they didn't think I'd ever make a career out of it. Then suddenly, like I am building software that people are prepared to pay fairly significant chunks of money for. And that's really rewarding. I think you hit the nail on the head there. And a message that I've tried to broadcast to people when I've been talking on this show is that Often when you hear people talking, like they're trying to motivate people to perhaps start their own business, but you have to have the right mindset to do that in my view. Yeah. If you can find a job that you're quite happy doing day in, day out, and even to the point of loving it, there's no shame in that. <laughs> like That's an equally good path to go down. Yeah. But if you do decide to actually go through it yourself, that's equally as good a decision. And like you say, it's going to be difficult, but if that's what you love, that's what you've got to do. And I think that people often think that, entrepreneurship or working for yourself is the holy land if you will and as soon as you start that's the, the easy life yeah it's difficult and like i say that it the, the potential rewards are possibly greater mm. right there's no real ceiling on where it might go but then there's downsides to it which is like you never shut off you you don't have anyone to tell you that you're sort of you're doing well or surpassing expectations you're not going to get promotion and if it screws up if people lose their jobs it all it all stops with you so you're right it's not for everyone it might not be for everyone at the right time as well. So I feel like one of the benefits of doing it while I was at uni is that I didn't have commitments or real outgoing expenses at the time. So I could afford to take some 
for e-health risks, which is obviously difficult as you get older. It will be more difficult even for me now, and I imagine it'll be more difficult for different reasons in about five years. Yeah, when you get older and you start getting commitments with perhaps mortgages or you're paying for a car and stuff, you have to start thinking about that as well. Yeah. So definitely choosing your moment is a key thing. And even with your mindset, you might think, uh, actually... I'm quite happy with a job at one stage and then just suddenly, you know, a light bulb moment comes and yeah, that's the time to switch. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right there choosing your moment and doing what's best for you at that time. Yeah. Fantastic. So you've mentioned a couple of books already, which is absolutely great. And for those people who are running and driving, don't necessarily pull over or stop your workout right now. I'll link to those in the show notes. But could you point to any other books or resources perhaps that might help people to either generally to be a bit inspiring or something interesting for people to pick up or or something that's helped you in your particular field? Yeah, sure. So, so the ones I mentioned were Platform Scale, which is all about this new sort of software as a service business model. And it, it explains, for example, the whole Airbnb, the largest hotel chain now and no hotels and Uber and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, those sort of like the classic Will, will be obviously like the Lean Startup, which I think is definitely worth a read. Beyond there, there's a book called Mastery, which I really like by a guy called Robert Greene, who's basically spent years researching different people through history. So from Darwin to Da Vinci to Steve Jobs and stuff more recently, and looked about what made them sort of unique and what, what let them sort of really innovate within their fields. That's full of lots of little interesting tidbits. Then if any of your listeners have come across more recent figure, Jordan Peterson, his book, 12 Rules and, and Maps and Meaning is well, it's not directly business related. It's incredibly, for me at least, like useful way to look at various things in your own life and, and stuff like that. I've got to be honest, I'm not a great reader, but I'm a great consumer of audiobooks. Yeah, sure. I've not heard of any of those, so they're all definitely going on my playlist. So thank you very much from me, myself, but also on behalf of the listeners, because I'm sure they'll find those valuable as well. Awesome suggestions. Are you a heavy reader or do you prefer to listen when you're traveling or anything like that? I'm like you. I used to read quite a bit. Now... I either don't get time or I tell myself that I've not got time because there's more immediate things I want to do in the business. Although like, having said that, every time I do break away for long enough to read a good, particularly like a nonfiction book, I do wish I'd sort of read it sooner and that I read more. I used to listen to a lot of audio books, but then I kept falling asleep listening to them because I listened to them late at night. Then I lost what I was up to and had to rewind them. <laughs> so I'm more like a podcast guy now because good sort of like 40 minute summary. So I really like podcasts with like, authors of those books and I think there's more and more long form stuff on YouTube that is you know filling the place always like a reasonable good substitute to some of those like business non-fiction things excellent any um podcasts that you can point people in the direction of uh ooh. doesn't have to be business related anything you could listen to over and over I really like Joe Rogan's podcast Have you come across that I haven't no so it's probably it's the biggest podcast in the world and it's the thing that's sort of like making a lot of it famous now so he gets like millions of views on them but he's been called like the Oprah Winfrey of podcasting so he gets amazing guests on there from a whole range of things so from like business leaders to sort of current chatting authors or actors and stuff like that it, there's some interesting chats about like sort of life generally and what makes them sort of successful at least successful enough to be someone who's appearing on that show and yeah there's hundreds of them and from people in all sorts of different niches so you'll, you'll probably find something that you like in there or someone that you've heard of i'll have to check that one out as well because i can't believe that like i, I consume so many podcasts yeah check it out it's, it's the gold standard of a podcast so apart from that yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll be um downloading that as soon as we get off this call because yeah i love a good podcast fantastic so thanks for those suggestions james that's um brilliant and yeah not at all and like i say i'll link out to all of those um so people can check those out in whatever medium they prefer so that just leaves me to wrap up the conversation really and say thank you very much we appreciate you spending your time and yeah no it's been fun yeah thanks so much for having me could you suggest where people can follow you or if um, people want to get in touch perhaps 
Yeah, sure. So sign up is at sign up, S-Y-N-A-P on Twitter or www.signup.ac. And easiest way to get in touch with me is Twitter. So my name is James Gupta. Twitter is Gupta underscore James. That's G-U-P-T-A underscore James. Fantastic. So thank you very much to James and take care and speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks very much. Keep in touch. What an amazing guest Dr. James was. Thanks again for appearing on the show, James. I love how you built your business whilst you're still qualifying as a doctor. And for me, that just illustrates that as long as you have the drive and determination, you can really put your mind to anything. Before we get to the winners of our competition, let's just run through the key takeaways and then we'll get to the fun stuff. Be a practitioner. Even if this just means learning the basics, this is going to give you a bit of an understanding about what it is that you're talking about, especially if it is that you need to hire other people to do that specialist job for you. Use the wisdom of crowds. Learn from others. Research similar companies and professionals and use their ideas to help feed your own. Opportunities are anywhere and they can happen at any time. I mean, who knew that SignUp would get business from a conversation they started on Twitter? Follow your instinct. If an idea keeps coming back to you, what have you got to lose by following it? Surely it's trying to tell you something. Even if it doesn't work out in the end, at least you won't continuously ask yourself, what if I'd have given it a go? Keep accountable. Tell others your plan. This will help you to continue when you might normally give up. I use the analogy here of, I remember when I used to go running with my friends at university. I would make sure I'd go if I knew that a couple of my friends were going out. However, when I get home for summers or even now, I often will find any excuse not to go out because it's just me and I'll go easy on myself. So keep accountable because no one wants to let somebody they respect or value down. If you're creating a business, try and find a co-founder. If you're able to, this will not only help you to share the responsibility, but it will also help you to become accountable as we just mentioned, and equally you can work to each other's strengths. Test and research. Before you dive into the world of business, do your homework on what it is that you think you want to do. If it is that you're thinking about starting an actual business, do some testing and research of the viability of your product or your idea. An entrepreneur isn't guaranteed riches. As James mentioned, you can actually earn less than an equivalent role. However, if it's something that you love doing, the fulfillment is much more important than simply turning up for a paycheck. Choose your moment. Sometimes the timing just isn't right. You've got to make the best decision for that moment. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Get Work Savvy podcast. And don't worry, I haven't forgotten. For those people who are hanging on just to find out who won that launch competition, let me announce those lucky winners. So for the top and the first announcement of that £50 Amazon voucher, our winner is Emily Christchurchin. I hope that I pronounced your last name right, Emily. Um, I really do struggle with names sometimes, so I do apologise about that. But your comment of really inspiring podcast and definitely worth listening to, music to my ears, I'm so glad it's of value to you. Thank you for the five-star rating, and I'll be getting in touch with arranging delivery of that Amazon voucher. And so the first runner-up prize goes to I'm Richard Moore. Thanks for the comment, Richard. You said that you think that I'm the British Tim Ferriss in waiting, and I certainly am not there yet, but I'd certainly aspire to get there. I'm glad that you enjoy this UK feel to the podcast and that there's some actionable advice there for you as well. So thank you very much for your comment. I'll be contacting you with arranging how I can get that £25 voucher to yourself. And finally... 
The second runner-up and the last voucher of £25 goes to Alison Jones. Thank you very much for your comment, Alison. I really love how you've taken away the genuine talks and the approach to the discussions. I really do try and approach it as a real-life discussion. I do give people prompts because they're a little bit nervous about what we might be talking about. However, I like to keep it honest and, and quite real as well, so I'm glad that you've got that out of these episodes. Absolute huge thanks to everyone who's left a rating and a review. It really does help the podcast. And if you have got a free five minutes and you've found this valuable, I'd love to read some more of your comments. And I'm really privileged and really lucky with feedback that I've got. I'm glad that you are all loving this podcast. So until next week's episode, don't forget to find a way to get work savvy yourself and speak to you soon.